but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we are in week four of a five-week series entitled Get Greedy. Um, That's kind of our tongue-in-cheek title for a series on money. Uh, The premise is this, if we get greedy for the right things, our hearts will be freed from being enslaved to greed for the wrong things. So if we get greedy for an experience of grace, if we get greedy for joy, if we get greedy for freedom, if we get greedy for God, it will free us from an enslavement to um, the things that our culture tells us we have to have in order to be happy, and yet we never are, right? So we've been unpacking biblical principles for giving over the last uh, several weeks, and, uh, and ultimately how getting greedy for grace frees us um, to be generous and joyful. Um, so I want to start with a little bit of a review of the last couple of weeks, um, just to kind of reiterate and drive them home. We're not going to re-preach the sermons, but I do want to take the main ideas and, and reiterate the principles that we've covered. So week one, we talked about the grace principle. Uh, during, the gra- during this week, what we talked about is, is essentially grace frees us from greed. It's a very different way of approaching life. It's a different way of approaching our money, right? Greed, uh, the greed math basically says that, that I look at what I have as an owner and I add a little bit more to it. And if I can just add a little bit more, then I'll be content, right? So a little more house, a little more car, a little more savings, a little more luxury, a few more meals, whatever it is, eating out. Um, if I can just have a little bit more, then I will be content, right? And underlying that is this idea that, that these things will give me what I truly desire. So if I can get a little bit more success, then I'll finally feel good about myself. If I can get a little bit few, fewer, if I can get more people uh, envious of the car that I'm driving, or then, then people will like me and I will be more important. If I can have a little bit more comfort, right? If I can have just a few more meals out or, or a better entertainment system or... See, the idea is if I can just get a little bit more, then I'll be content. And of course, we all know that just isn't true, right? That we, our own life histories tell us that getting more does not produce contentment. It only, in fact, increases discontentment. The problem is we keep believing the lie and we keep pursuing more stuff. The people that have gone the farthest into this know how big of a lie this is because the more you get, the more disappointed you become, right? The more success you get, the more money you get, the more... And, and it's not that there isn't pleasure in the short term, but the things that you're truly looking for don't come out of those things. And so what ends up happening is we end up living quiet lives of despair, continuing to pursue things that ultimately don't satisfy. Grace, grace frees us in beautiful ways from that treadmill of greed, right? Grace basically says you're not an owner, you're a steward. So it's a completely different way of approaching our lives. I'm a steward of my time, my talents, and my resources, my treasure, my relationships. I am a, I'm a steward. Why? Because God's entrusted it to me. God gave me life and breath and everything else for His glory and, and for my good, for my joy. So as a steward, I'm, I'm coming not as an owner to build my own kingdom, but as a steward to glorify God in His kingdom, trusting that that God who gave me these things is also going to provide for me and bless me and, and free me, right? So that, that allows me to be freed and generous in in, in, in gratitude because I look at what I have, and instead of saying, if I could just have a little more, it, it totally shifts to, holy cow, look how much I've been given. Look, look at what I've been given in Christ. Look what I've been given in, in, in God's love for me, right? It shifts from uh, this constant need for more to a thankfulness for what I have. When I add gratitude to an idea of stewardship, that math adds up to joyful generosity. That frees me from being a slave to my things. I can actually give things away, right? And, and here's the thing, you guys. When you meet someone like this, it is both startling and refreshing because <laughs> it's like, holy cow, you really don't care about this stuff, do you? <laughs> you just gave away your car. You just gave away that money. You just gave away, wow, there's something there 
that's like, man, you really believe something quite different. And that's what I'm telling you guys is that the gospel frees us to radical generosity. And as we pursue this, um, we will simply be uh, be able to experience more grace. The bottom line of that sermon was what we do with our money both shows our hearts and shapes our hearts, right? So we can look at our checkbooks and find out what we value. What you spend money on is what you value, right? So there are things that you value that are necessities, your kids, your family, things like that. There are a lot of things that you value that aren't necessities, but that's what you spend your money on because you're looking to those things to give you something, right? And, and, and the message that comes out of that is we can choose how to shape our hearts by how we use our money actually choosing to, to spend money in right ways or to give money in right ways, or we actually, it's not just an act of faith, it's actually uh, an act that shapes our hearts. Okay, the next week we dealt with the fairness principle. That was uh, two weeks ago. And on this principle, we took a look at what God expects us to do as His followers when it comes to giving, right? There's not um, a simple solution here, right? Um, there's no single percentage, or single amount that everybody's supposed to give. You just won't find it in the New Testament. It's not there. What is expected is that everybody's going to come as a steward and ask the, the God who owns everything, hey, how do, you, how do you want me to manage this to your glory, right? And so since God is more concerned with our hearts than our gift, what He's looking for is, is equal sacrifice, not equal giving, right? So what that means is, one, if... if, if you're, you're on the low end of the economic spectrum and you can't give much. It doesn't make your gift less significant. God's after your heart, not your money. And so for some people, what may seem like a small gift is in fact a sacrificial gift, an act of faith on their part. And in engaging, giving in that way, they are in fact cooperating with God in the shaping of their souls, right? What that also means is that somebody may be able to give a large amount of money, but really it doesn't reflect much sacrifice, because they're, they have deeper pockets. They have more resources. God has entrusted them with more. Uh, just because they can give a big gift doesn't make it a significant gift. The, the, the issue is equal sacrifice, not equal giving. The question is, is, are you in fact following God in sacrificial giving? Are you basically allowing Him to determine your level of sacrifice, your level of giving? That's what He's asking. Since He owns it all, um, He's basically asking that you use it all for His glory. The end result is that as we move forward in faith, and that's the next week, the faith principle, as we move forward in faith, God um, frees us in some beautiful ways, right? So take a look at the faith principle. That's the next week. Faith requires both obedience and trust. God basically says, hey, this is what's best for you. Faith says, I trust you and I'll do it. (laughs) Even if it doesn't necessarily feel good or feel right, sometimes we have to obey before we experience the joy of obedience, And that is an act of trust where we're basically saying, okay, God, what you're telling me doesn't intuitively feel great right now, right? Especially when it comes to giving, right? Because every time you give money away, it's money you can't spend. And so it doesn't feel great to give up that meal or to give up that luxury or to give up that whatever it is, right? That doesn't feel good, but I'm doing it in faith, knowing that you're going to meet me in ways that that meal, that thing never could. So you're saying, God, you are going to be more satisfying to me. Than, than what I would have spent on myself. That is an act of obedience and an act of trust, and God honors that. That's what we looked at. So when it comes down to it, what is God asking us to obey? Well, very simply, He wants us to give freely, not under compulsion, not under guilt. Right? We don't come because, oh, this is how I you know, pay back my debt, or, or you know, I'm going to put pictures up of, of starving people, and man, it's here, okay, I guess I'll get right. I'm not, we're not going to pull your heartstrings like that. We're not going to try and manipulate you emotionally, right? Because that kind of giving doesn't honor God. God's not looking for indebted giving because that doesn't change your heart. All that does is, is it acts like a temporary salve for your conscience. What He wants is for you to actually engage freely in the process because that is when um, you're actually stepping out in faith. And when you're stepping out in faith is when He will actually engage and change your heart. So He wants you to enter into it freely. He wants you to enter into it joyfully, right? And He wants that joy to be reflected in in a cheerfulness in the sacrifice because that's the final part. It needs to be sacrificial. There's a sense in which He's saying everyone is called upon to give generously, right? And what do we mean by generously? It hurts a little bit, right? To quote the, uh, the great theologian, John Cougar Mellencamp, it, hurt, it needs to hurt so good, right? You know, that, that's kind of what he's saying is, is in a sense, this thing needs to, to, to hurt, but there needs to be joy in the pain, right? 
Here's the thing, you guys. It doesn't hurt because I'm dying. That, that may be how it starts out feeling. <laughs> the first time you give money away, and especially the first time you give it away sacrificially, it may feel like you're dying a little bit, right? You're giving up security. You're giving up comfort. You're giving up pleasure. You're giving up something you want, and you feel like you're dying a little bit. What you're going to find is that a God, God meets you in that. Um, you're not, it's not, no longer a pain of dying. It's a pain of giving something up for something better. And God will meet you in that process. Because look at what He promises, right? As you move out to give freely, joyfully, sacrificially, He promises that He will increase our joy. Well, that's pretty awesome, right? Because most of the time, what are we looking for out of life? Joy, right? Why do you want that Starbucks coffee? Because, dude, I'm dead in the morning. Okay, I get that. But, but you're hoping that by drinking the Starbucks coffee, you're not only going to come to life, but you're actually going to experience a certain level of joy, right? That's why you, you don't just get a cup of coffee, you get the $5 specialty drink. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's an investment that's going to... What, what, what God is saying is, is as you move out in faith, I'm going to meet you. I'm going to free you into grace. I will increase your experience of joy. Catch this, you guys, because this is important. Giving doesn't give you more grace. You already have all the grace you can ever get in Christ. You cannot do anything that'll make God love you more. You can't do anything that'll make God love you less. You have His complete favor in Christ, but you can't experience more of the grace you already have. Most of us are experiencing a tiny amount of grace in our lives, not because we don't have it, but because our hearts are not geared to engage it. So what he's saying is when you give, that's one of the key ways I will change your heart so you can actually experience more grace, more of what you already have in Christ. I will increase your joy. I will increase your righteousness. Now, righteousness is this beautiful idea that that God is actually changing us to be right, right with ourselves, right with others, and right with Him. It's not that we're becoming better. It's that we're becoming who we were created to be through the power of Christ. When we enter into the grace of giving, God changes our hearts. He changes our motivations. He changes who we are. And in that process, we become more like Jesus. We become more of who we've already been declared to be because of the work of Christ, who we are as believers of Christ, right? So it's an increase of practical righteousness, of being changed into being the right people that we all want to be as followers of Jesus. Finally, He will increase our means for generosity. There's a very clear statement that that as we are generous, He will increase our ability to be generous. He will multiply the seed of the sower. So if we throw the seed out generously, He will, in fact, increase the seed. Not for us to suddenly get greedy, like, oh, all right, now i got a bunch more seed. Now I can finally live for myself. He increases the seed for the sower so that they can sow more seed. He increases our, our, our resources so we can, in fact, become more generous right? Here's the thing. A generous heart can be entrusted with more resources. A greedy heart can't. A hoarding heart can't be trusted with more resources. Why? Because all you're going to do is hoard it. You're not going to be thankful. And you're going to say, more please, more please, right? A, A generous heart freely gives and in giving receives joy and heart transformation and advances the kingdom of God. And as God gives that kind of heart more, it only takes more joy in giving more. You see what I'm saying? Grace always experiences its greatest benefit in transmission, right? Grace was never given to us to hold on to and hoard, right? It was given to us to give to others. And as it comes to us and it goes out to others, we're the ones that reap the benefit. Our hearts are changed. Our lives are changed. We experience more joy. We become who we're created to be. All right, so the faith principle. We step out in faith, you guys. We step out in obedience. Even if it hurts, even if it doesn't feel great to begin with, trusting that as we step out in obedience, God will, in fact, meet us in it and free us into the joy of obedience as a result. All right, next week, we're going to be talking about the legacy effect or the legacy principle. The legacy principle simply is this, that God takes our actions of faithfulness and increases um, the consequences or increases the effects. So the cause would be an act of faith. God takes that act of faith and then increases it for His glory and for the benefit of others. It's like taking a rock and throwing it into a, a still pond. You guys know the ripple effect, right? The ripples go out and they keep going, right? Well, imagine if the ripples only got stronger as they went. That, that's kind of the idea here. God takes our acts of faith 
and actually increases their value. Why? Because he loves to magnify faith. And as he does so, he gets the glory and other people get the good. So if you think about it, this is like, we see this principle throughout Scripture, people that are simply faithful in the moment. They, they think what they're doing is simply their obligation or what they need to do in the moment. And then we see how that act is magnified through history, right? You think of David and Goliath. David simply stepped out as a, as a, as a bold, faith-filled young man and did what he thought he needed to do. He had no idea what the consequences of that tiny little act of, of faith was going to be. Rahab the harlot hid the spies in the land, right? In that moment, she simply did what she felt like she needed to do, right? She had no idea that hiding these guys up on the roof was going to have such a a huge effect. And yet there's this huge ripple effect. She actually becomes part of the line of Christ, right? There's this boy that that has fish and loaves, and there's 10,000 people gathered to listen to Jesus. And Jesus is like, all right, it's late in the day. We got to feed these guys. Who's got some food? And the little kid's like, well, I got a few fish and a loaf, right? She's like, awesome, right? And he feeds 10,000 people with it, right? That's what I'm talking about. It's this principle where God takes small acts of faith and multiplies them out for his glory and for the benefit of others. That's where we're going next week. (laughs) Pre-preaching my sermon. Um, This week. This week, we're going to focus on some principles, but these principles honestly have more to do with the leadership of the church than with um, us as being the church right? The principles that I've talked about are really applicable to all of us. Those, those four principles lead me in my giving and lead you in your giving. And in these two chapters, Paul is giving us um, an incredible detailed teaching on how giving is an act of worship and obedience and how God uses it to change our hearts. But he also gives incredible insight into how church leaders should lead when they're asking for money, right? Paul models in these two chapters how leaders should lead when it comes to um, engaging the church and calling the church to give. There are clear principles here. Um, and, And the heart of it is this. There's a clear principle that leaders need to be clear and they need to be honorable. So the principle is a clarity and honorability. There needs to be clarity and honorability in the leadership when it comes to dealing with money. When you read these two chapters, first of all, Paul is crystal clear. He's clear about what they're giving to. They're giving to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And that's going to do two things. It's going to meet the needs of believers who are impoverished, but it's also going to equip mission through Jerusalem to the uttermost part of the earth. And so it's both taking care of the family and moving out on mission, right? He's saying, this is what we're going to do. He's very clear about that. He's also very clear about how the Corinthians are supposed to be involved, when you read through these chapters, man, he's not hemming and hawing. He's not using indirect language. He's not avoiding the direct ask. I mean, he is very, very clear. He's like, look, we have an opportunity in front of us, and we as a church need to be faithful to that opportunity, right? Very clear, very direct, um, honoring his listeners, um, trusting that they are, in fact, able to handle uh, direct talk about sensitive topics, right? So he's, he's being very clear. So it's important that leaders be clear when we're talking about money. He's also going to pains to be honorable. The section we read um, today, kind of a weird section um, if you didn't tune out, <laughs> because honestly, it's just basically him saying, look, I'm going to send Titus to you, and he's going to collect the money. And, and with him, I'm going to send this famous dude. He's famous throughout all the churches. Uh, and, and, and he talks about the gospel, and he's going to be with him, and they're going to come collect the money, and this is how it's going to go down. They're going to show up, and this is the way it's going to happen, and then they're going to collect the money. And why is he... We're in the middle. These two chapters are like the most extended theology of giving in the New Testament. I mean, they are beautifully um, spelled out, a lot of detail, a lot of information. Right in the middle of it is this little pocket where he's like going over all these details. I mean, why is he doing that? Instead of just sticking to the, the broader points of giving, why is he going over the details about who he's sending and, and why he's sending them? Well, he makes it clear in verses 20 and 21. In verses 20 and 21, he says this, we take this course. In other words, look, I'm telling you about all this stuff, who we're sending and why they're coming. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us. 
In other words, so that we will not be blameworthy, so that there will be no shadow of people thinking that, that there's something worthy of blame here. Verse 21, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Paul's saying, look, I'm giving you all these details because I want to be clear and I want to be honorable. That's what I need to do. I want to be clear both why we want the money and how we're going to handle it. Now, it is interesting and worth noting in verse 21 how he says it. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. I mean, the first and most important thing that Paul feels is his need to be honorable before God. Um, Paul understood the power of God. <laughs> he had seen it. It had worked through him. Um, he, he understood what a heavy responsibility it was to, in fact, speak in the name of God. Um, and that was, in and of itself, enough motivation for him to be honorable. Um, there is a message here, in a sense, that leaders um, need to be incredibly careful as to their own lives and honestly as to the message they preach because of the weight of speaking in the name of God. There's, uh, um, the Word of God teaches that those who teach carry a greater burden of responsibility, that they will in fact be held to a higher account than um, those that they teach. Uh, those are verses that terrify me. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. I mean, those are like, holy cow, I'm really glad that on that day I'm going to come before God, I'm going to be like, Jesus, right? He's the one, right? You want, you want to find out how I measure up? Jesus. You want to find out how, if, if I did a good, look at Jesus, right? He's my merit. He's my success. He's my covering. He's my righteousness, right? Because I fail miserably. But there is a sense in which, as a leader, I understand I am called on to engage the work of God before I start teaching about the work of God, that I am honorable in the handling of the Word of God, if I am, in fact, going to be entrusted um, in a sense, with the work of the Spirit, right? Because the Spirit works through us. Paul understands that. When Paul's talking about handling money, he's like, look, I get it, man. I have to be first accountable to God. And God will hold me accountable. And we know there, there of course, a rich history of people that have spoken in the name of God for selfish ends. And uh, God has a way of handling those things. Um, and He will hold people accountable. And so Paul's saying, look, I'm accountable to God but I'm also accountable to the you. I'm also accountable to the Corinthians. That's what, that's what he's saying in his letter. I'm accountable to God, but I'm also accountable to you, which means I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to go to pains to make sure you know um, what we're using the money for and how we're going to handle it so that you can see we are above blame, so that you can see we are, in fact, trustworthy with the gift. Now, what's interesting is that Paul describes here something we actually do every week. It's not something we talk about a lot. In fact, you wouldn't even know about it. Very simply, he is describing a two-person financial system. A two-person financial system basically says that no one person is able to either collect, handle, or distribute the money without the accountability of at least one other set of eyes. So that means from the collection to the distribution of the money uh, at Trailhead Church from day one, this is the way we've structured this, there, there are two sets of eyes. So there's two people that, that will count it and account for the income, right? There, there are two people. In fact, we, when it comes to distributing the money, we have both an accountant and a treasurer, right? We don't combine those into a single person. Why? Because we want two people looking at the distribution of the finances. We have a two-person check signing policy, right? So every check requires the signature of two people, okay? Why do we do that? It's inconvenient, it's actually kind of a pain sometimes, right? Um, because that means the two people have to be together to pay all the bills or to... Why do we do that? We do that because it is financially responsible. It is what we would call financial best practices, right? We want to be honorable in the sight of God. We want to be honorable in the sight of men, which means we are going to put into practice the best principles of handling finances um, that, are, that are commonly recognized, right? And that's exactly what, what Paul is saying, is, is from its collection to its distribution, two people have an eye on the process, and it's a safeguard, right? It is so easy sometimes to just say, well, I know Steve, or I know so-and-so, and they're trustworthy. And so we're not going to go through the hassle of creating a system of accountability. 
That is a recipe for disaster because even good people are broken people and bad things can happen. And I could give you a rich history when they have. We want to avoid that. And we do that by putting safeguards in place to account for and to make sure that we are in fact um, handling with integrity every dollar that is given to Trailhead and in fact um, goes out of Trailhead. We're very clear about how we collect our funds and um, we seek to be honorable in the handling and expenditure of those funds. So this week, in addition to, to talking about the honorability piece, I want to be very, very clear about this thing we've been talking about for the last three weeks, this capital campaign, because we have a unique opportunity in front of us as a church. We have a unique challenge that, that we need to rise up and meet. And so I want to be very, very clear about what the challenge is, what the opportunity is, and, and, and how we're going to go about this. So I'm going to talk about why we're collecting the money, um, what we're going to use the money for, and, and, and how we're going to go about meeting our goals of, of meeting this, this challenge. So big picture, why? <laughs> why are we collecting money? Why does a church even need to talk about money? Why can't we just be spiritual and talk about spiritual things? Well, first of all, money is spiritual. Uh, what we do with our money is an act of worship continually. Everything you do with your money is an act of worship. You're either looking to God to be God, or you're looking to something else to be God. And there's no better way to find out what your heart is looking to than to look at your checkbook, right? We are talking about something that is very spiritual. So here's the thing, you guys. We're talking about money for the same exact reason Paul talked about money. Now, we're not taking an offering to send to poor believers in Jerusalem, right? So the circumstances are different, but the purpose behind those circumstances is the same. Here's the thing. We have been entrusted with a message that puts us on mission, and that requires us to give. We've been entrusted with a message that puts us on mission. I don't know about your story, but I know my story actually, I can see it very clearly in in my story of how I became a follower of Christ. Um, I became a follower of Christ uh, my freshman year of college. Um, And up to that point, I was pretty angry. I was a fairly typical malcontent. (laughs) I was a skateboarder, vandal. Um, I, I think I was pretty much suspended from school every year. Uh, it was one of those badges that I wore. Um, I was uh, on a quick uh, uh, road to absolute underachievement. <clears throat> and, uh, and I was also a reader, which doesn't necessarily go with that. My grandmother um, took pity on me at a young age and introduced me to good literature and was like, why don't you start? And I actually began reading, and I loved reading. And um, what ended up happening is I started reading things that really started challenging me, especially as I moved through, through high school. For those of you who are literature geeks, um, I really got kind of sucked into a lot of the existential writers, um, and so um, sat a lot in Sartre and Camus and Kafka, and that led to uh, the more modern versions of like Tom Stoppard's plays, and, and then into the more even more modern stuff, Kurt Vonnegut and um, uh, Chuck um, Palahniuk, um, Fight Club, right? Um, anyway. If you're not, here's the underlying thing, because some of you are like, dude, what in the world are you talking about, right? (laughs) I was a literature teacher, sorry. Uh, I love literature. If you're not a lit lit geek, let me put it this way. Underlying all of those authors is a stream of thought that developed over time that's called existentialism. And essentially at the heart of that is the thought that life has no meaning outside of the um, meaning we bring to it in existence, that by living life, we give meaning to life. And that, in fact, the meaning we give to life is in itself also meaningless because life has no greater purpose. Life has no greater meaning. So the only meaning there is is in the actual living of life. See, that existentialism that I was studying became the philosophical groundwork for what we now call postmodernism. Postmodernism is the dominant thought pattern of our culture today that there is no absolute meaning, that there is only meaning in the experience of life, that your truth is not my truth because there is no truth. At the heart of that philosophy of life is despair. Because at the heart of that philosophy of life is a message that says life is absurd. Life has no greater meaning. And as I read this stuff and sat in it, I came to see that I was, in fact, just to kind of shift gears a little bit, for those of you that are more Trekkie nerds, I was a red shirt. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, still off, Steve. All right. Um, here's the thing. In, in all the old Star Trek episodes, 
if you were ever wearing a red shirt when you went to the planet's surface, you were dead, right? Because they needed somebody who was nameless and, and unknown to die in the episode, right? Well, here's the great revelation. Imagine that they eventually get to the final episode and you find out everybody's a red shirt. Everybody dies. Everybody's unknown in the end. Everything is meaningless. Nothing has lasting value. Everyone's a red shirt because in the end, it's all meaningless. That is the quiet despair that underlies our culture. While people are busy pursuing bigger cars, bigger houses, more success at work, greater recognition. They're trying to find some way to be more known, more comfortable, more powerful is a nagging, persistent knowledge that it's all meaningless, that it's all temporary, that in the end, it's absurd. And what ends up happening is people end up living quiet lives of despair, continuing to pursue the very things they know won't give them meaning because they desperately need meaning in their lives. That's where I was. Now, I didn't get there through Star Trek. <laughs> I got there through literature, but that's where I was. I found an echo as I read this stuff because, man, it just spoke to my deepest fear, to tell you the truth, that, that there was, in fact, no meaning, and there was only one heroic meaning in life, and that was to embrace the absurd, which is why many people um, who are hardcore existentialists uh, committed suicide. I remember the first time I read Shakespeare's Macbeth. Um, Shakespeare. <laughs> many of you only read him in high school. Go back and read him again, okay? Let me just give you a clue. It's kind of like fine wine. Um, you can't appreciate it when all you know how to drink is beer, right? In high school, you don't have the maturity or the taste buds necessary to appreciate the fineness of great literature. Um, go back to Shakespeare. This, all right, I'm a lit teacher here, just preaching a little bit. Um, but, but it's rich stuff. And, and, and he wrote a play called Macbeth. And in Macbeth, the lead character is this king that is power hungry. I mean, he is just power hungry. He wants a kingdom. And he wants absolute power and he wants everyone to bow at his feet. And he is convinced by the exercise of sheer brutality, he can bring everything into submission to him, right? We talk about hard idols, which we talked about a lot at Trailhead. This guy is driven by a power idol. My life only has meaning. I am only significant if I am successful, if I am absolutely successful and everybody must bow to my success. The problem is his very desire for power completely undermines his ability to achieve it and exercise it. And things start unraveling around him. At the end of the play, his wife, Lady Macbeth, commits suicide. She kind of goes crazy a little bit. Um, and it's a, it's a, awesome thing. And she ends up dying. And, and um, right at the end, man, he gets a glimpse. He gets a glimpse. Man, he has been working his entire life to establish a kingdom, his entire life to build this thing. His wife, he hears that his wife has died. He sees that his, he's not going to win. And this is what he says. And, and I remember this because the first time I read this, man, it just fried me. I, it was, I, I memorized it the first time I read it because it just, it burned me. Because at that time, I was like, that speaks to my deepest fear. I think that's true. This is what he said. He said, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. See, what he's saying is we're all living in this great play, and we all think our part is really important. Like we're, in fact, the main character on the stage. And so we get up there and we strut and we fret and we deliver our lines and we live our lives and our lives are full of sound and fury. Like we're passionate, we're into it. But it signifies nothing. After our hour upon the stage, we're never heard from again and nobody misses us. We never reappear in the play because our part was insignificant and absurd. You guys, that is the hopelessness of our culture. It's masked because we're distracting ourselves with toys 
We're distracting ourselves with our materialism, with getting more, eating more, taking more pictures of what we're eating, buying the newest electronic gadget. You know what I'm saying? Like we are just continually driven to distract ourselves from this nagging thing that we are terrified is true. And then at 17, I went to college and I met a guy named Tom Dean. He was a 59-year-old freshman. I remember the first time I saw him, I was sitting in the cafeteria and he walked in. I thought he was a professor. He had this shock of white hair. He had a bow tie. He kind of looked like Orville Redenbacher. He walks across the cafeteria and sits with me. I was um, young and mature. And so I did my best, honestly, in that moment to just offend him and make him go away. It was kind of awesome because he wouldn't be offended, right? I burp at him. He burps back at me louder, right? He's like, son, you did that wrong. You need to use your diaphragm. Not even lying. Um, and he burps and my ears are glowing. I'm like, who is this guy, right? So he, he reaches out to me, develops a relationship with me. We start talking. And here's the thing. I see something in him that I want in me. There's a joy in him. There's a freedom in him. There's a recklessness of hope in him that I am afraid to engage myself because I am locked up in my fear. I am locked up in my despair. I'm like, dude, What's going on? He tells me about Jesus. I'm like, I've never read the Bible before. What's, where should I start? He says, oh, Hebrews is my favorite book. Why don't you start there? Uh, if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, that's not the best place to start generally. Um, it, is, it is, I think, only second to the book of Revelation for the last place you'd start. Um, but that's where I started. I knew nothing about the Bible, nothing about the Bible. But by the time I got done reading the book of Hebrews that night, I knew I was a believer. I knew there was a hope that I desperately was afraid wasn't true, that there was, in fact, a story to be entered into. The book of Hebrews opens this way. Take a look at this. This is the first three verses. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God was telling a story in the past. You catch that? God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. He was speaking, telling a story. In these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. Right there was um, kind of a silver bullet for my despair. Life is chaotic. It can be hard and painful and confusing. But it is not absurd. And it is not random. Because there is a storyteller. There is a storyteller who is bent on telling the story in such a way that it comes out as a story of redemption and restoration. We tried to break the story away from God. We rebelled against him. We basically said to God, you will no longer be the center. So we turned the whole story off its access and said, now it's all about me. It's no longer all about you. And in that place, it becomes absurd and full of despair because we're looking to everything that isn't God to do for us what only God can do. But God didn't stand apart and separate from our absurdity. He didn't stand outside of our suffering and condemn us. He instead entered into it and became one of us, that he might live the life we deserve, that we should have lived, and die the death we deserve to die, so that he could rise again a new life, so we could have forgiveness for our rebellion. He was our substitute, so we could be his partner in righteousness. And as we believe in Christ... God promises to tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves because He is telling a great story, a grand human story of redemption and restoration. He will put the story back on its axis. He will rob it of its absurdity and its emptiness and its despair and renew it to hope. You guys, that is the message that transforms lives. That is the message that restores hope. That is the message that restores a context in which to look for a meaningful life, to look for genuinely restored marriages, to look for genuine healing from past wounds, to actually hope for a glorious future. It is a message that puts us on mission. 
because that message is not only about our glorious future in Christ, but God's glorious future in his creation. And he entrusted that message to us to share it with others. That's his plan. God could have used the angels. He he could have used Twitter. He could have done whatever he wanted, but he chose to use the church. And he said to the church, you are my chosen vehicle to carry the gospel out into the world and tell people about the message of who I am and what I've done so that you can be redeemed and restored. Why do we do what we do? Because we have a message that puts us on mission. God has entrusted to us the message that can and will change the world. You guys, God still loves God still moves, and God will still tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves, for our neighbors' lives than they would tell for themselves, for our community, for our workplace, for our city. It is a message that restores hope and transformation. And this message is as needed and relevant today as it was in Paul's time. See, it was that message that motivated Paul and put him on mission. It's the same message that motivates us and puts us on mission. So why do we do what we do? Because we've been entrusted the greatest message the world has ever received. God loves you. He sent a substitute to die for you. He rose again a new life for you. That if you would simply believe in him, Stop trusting in yourself, trust, stop trusting in your idols, and instead trust in Him. He will restore everything that's been lost. He will renew all the hope that has been given up to despair. He will bless. That's why we do what we do. So what are we trying to do? <laughs> all right. Well, that's why we're raising money. <laughs> that's my favorite part of the sermon right there. Um, what are we trying to do? Well, I've explained this in the past, and we've put out some literature. We've made a website about this. Um, you know, we put out these booklets, the Rooted and Growing booklets, which are our capital campaign um, summary. Uh, we are trying to raise $550,000 over the course of three years above and beyond our normal giving. We're trying to raise $550,000, half a million dollars, over three years, which is a pretty audacious thing to do as a two-and-a-half-year-old church. Half a million dollars. Above and beyond normal giving, right? Why? Because we need the normal giving to continue to fund the normal budgetary needs of the church, right? Uh, we need to continue to pay salaries and to, um, to, to you know, plant churches and to um, help people find counseling and to meet people in the community and, and um, um, offer help. I mean, all those things. So it has to be, be above and beyond the normal budgetary giving, right? That's our goal. What are we going to do with it? Well, the lion's share of it is going to be used to secure a building. We're in the process of talking with a, a church here in town, First Presbyterian. They bought property outside of town. They're planning to build and move. And they've been working on it for over a decade now. And, and so their building will come available if they're willing to sell it. And so we've entered into negotiations and talks with them about buying that building. That's our hope. Our hope is that this will all coincide, that God will use this as an opportunity to bless them in such a way that they can move and bless us in such a way that we can get the, uh, get the property. I'm not going to describe the property. It's all in the printed literature. We've talked about those sorts of things before. Um, but it could be a property that would do a number of things for us. First of all, um, it would enable us to meet the needs of our own family, of our own faith family. I mean, how cool would it be? We've done, man, I don't even know how many weddings I've done over the last couple of years. I mean, it has been a lot. Um, we have a lot of young people, and they have a way of falling in love and wanting to get married, which is awesome, right? It is very, very cool. Um, and and um, hmm. how cool would it be to be able to not just, uh, to be able to actually host those kinds of events, right? To, to, to actually do it in Trailhead Church uh, or, or to host other events, whether it's, it's community barbecues or, or celebrations or worship nights or things like that where, you know, we're, we don't have the freedom to do that here. Um, because of the parking, because of the noise restrictions, because of the other restrictions outside of Sunday morning that we have here. It would just allow us to use the facilities for the benefit of our, of our own family more fully. It would also allow us to engage our community more fully. Right? How cool would it be to have movie nights, movie discussion nights where we show movies and we open up to discussion, right? Because every, every piece of literature, every good movie is in fact an exploration of ideas, 
And as we explore ideas, we have the wonderful opportunity of opening up the story of grace and saying, this is how God fits in, to engage our, our community in conversations about things that are hard to talk about, right? To actually have discussion nights where we're talking to people that don't agree with us and may not even think they like us. But we have the opportunity to speak with them, to learn more about who they are, to hear more about what they have to say, but also to show them grace and show them this is what a gospel-transformed community looks like, and this is how a gospel-transformed community enters into conversations on difficult topics. It's a way to engage our community. It's also a way to serve our community with events like Affordable Christmas. That's one of the biggest events we pull off over the course of the year. And of course, we all want you to visit the table out there and make sure you figure out how to plug in. Um, We'll be serving a ton of families and a ton of kids this year. But we have to find a different place to host it every year because we simply don't have the ability to host it in our own space. How cool would it be to not only do that, but have the opportunity to to think of other ways to engage and serve our community in our own space, right? Um, One of the things that really excites me is this idea that, that we might, in fact, God may equip us to open a counseling center. We have some very good Christian counselors in the Metro East, um, but a lot of people have to travel over to St. Louis to, to engage good gospel-centered Christian counseling because that's where the counseling centers are. What a benefit to our community, right, to be able to say to folks, look, man, I know you were hurt. And I know there's a lot of brokenness that you need to unpack. Here's somebody who's going to do it in light of the gospel. They're going to do it and point you to the hope you have in Christ. They're going to do it in such a way that, that we're going to talk about how you get healed but how you get healed in such a way that you're being healed by the actual redemptive work of Christ, right? To have, have the, uh, the resources here to do that, um, that's, uh, that's something that we've talked about and have a lot of hope for. And, and of course, it will equip us to continue to move forward in church planting, something that's incredibly important to us. So I want to highlight at this point, um, we move forward in church planting, not on our own, right? I don't, I don't believe that God has called us to act in an isolated way. And so we're part of two networks, Acts 29, and Convergement America. Both of those are church planting networks. Um, and, and there are some opportunities specifically that have opened up over the last um, year with Converge. And uh, we don't talk a lot about it. And so I thought this would be a great opportunity to actually highlight one of the things that getting this building is going to equip us to do. So why don't we go ahead and throw that, uh, throw the video up. I believe there is one living and true God, existing in three persons. I believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe God hears our prayers. I believe in the Bible, God's own word. I believe that Jesus died to pay for our sins and he was raised from the dead. I believe the church is not a building or an event. It is the people of God. I believe that Jesus established the church and it should bring God glory. I believe healthy, strong churches grow and bear fruit. Jesus said, we must go, make disciples, baptize and teach. But how do we share the gospel with seven billion people? We know we can't do it alone. So what can we do? We find others who share our passion to see the world transformed by Christ. We are Converge. We are Converge. Converge. With about 1,200 churches, Converge is an expanding movement, adding nearly two congregations every week. Started in the 1850s by Swedish immigrants, Today, we're reaching more than 20 ethnicities in the U.S. and more than 27 countries worldwide. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Converge is all about starting and strengthening churches. We know starting new churches is the most effective way to reach new people. The church in Acts 13 sent out Paul and Barnabas to start churches. That spirit-powered strategy continues to this day. We know Jesus wants every church to transform its community. So we work together to strengthen churches. Reproducing the life of Christ everywhere we serve. That's what we're about. That's what we're about. That's what we're about. We believe God does things in biblical proportions. He multiplied the loaves and fish. He multiplied the new believers. He's multiplying churches worldwide. And that's what we do in Converge. You are part of this expanding movement, multiplying transformational churches together.
We are Converge. We are Converge. We are Converge. We are Converge. I wanted to take a moment and highlight a little bit about this because Converge, again, is not something we talk a lot about, but they're a great partner um, as we move forward in the, in the broader kingdom work of planting churches. I, I absolutely believe there's no better way to impact a local community than to plant a church. You want to meet issues of education, of poverty, of social need. What better way than to plant a church where people are going to be transformed to re-engage that community in the love and the generosity of Christ? They are going to move out in the transformative message of the gospel into that community and have a power that, that no, no amount of just dollars could ever have to actually transform a community, right? Here's the thing. Trailhead exists because we were planted by a church planting church. The journey sent us out and equipped us to start in 2011 because they believed in the power of church planting, that we could be a blessing to this community and that by sacrificing to send us out, they would in fact be starting something that would be a blessing to many, many others. And that's part of our DNA. We are a church planting church. So we're in the process of planting our first daughter church. We've had a hand in helping to plant numerous other churches. And in fact, Converge came alongside us and uh, this last year asked Trailhead to become one of the regional multiplication centers. Um, What that means is that I'm part of a team of, of regional church planting directors. Um, and so I oversee church planting in Illinois, southern Illinois and in the state of Missouri. <laughs> and so I'm, I am in the process of, of recruiting and training and equipping and coaching church planters throughout this two-state region. And um, it's not something I sought out. It's something that God kind of put on our plate. And here's the thing. I'm doing it, but we're doing it. Right? I'm, I'm, we're doing it together. This is, we're pooling our resources. We are exercising. And by having a building, I think it honestly will equip us to more effectively engage the opportunities that God is giving to us to become influencers in our region. We'll be able to host events where we're able to recruit, train, equip, and coach church planters so that more communities can be blessed by the planting of more churches. It allows us to continue to move out in generosity with our resources, our time, and our energy so that we can equip others to move out in generosity so that even more people can be blessed. You know, just a a word. This last week, I was up in Chicago for the Converge Biannual Meeting, and I was brought up on stage with all the other regional directors, a group of men that that I highly admire and and, um, am privileged to serve alongside. And I've only been on the team for a year. I'm the shortest guy, not shortest, shortest lived guy. No, um... I'm on the team the shortest time. There we go. Um, <laughs> and, um, and here's the thing, man. We got to celebrate something I've had a small part in. Trailhead's had a small part in, but I have had a part in. That in 2010, they set a goal of planting 40 new churches in the Midwest, Converge Mid-America, this strip that we just call the Midwest. It was a five-year goal. Well, as of this summer, they've already planted 40 churches three years in. Three years in, we've already reached our goal. Steve, are you excited about that? I am. Why don't you preach about it? I think I will. You guys excited about that? Isn't that cool, right? I mean, holy cow, 40 churches in three years, and we have the opportunity to play a role in that, in lives being transformed, people hearing the gospel that we'll never meet and we'll never know, but God does. And God will work through the exercise of our generosity to bless them. I mean, that's worth getting excited about. So how are we going to get there? That's our goal. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're hoping to get done with it. How are we going to get there? We're going to get there the same way God's work has ever gotten done. God's work is always funded by the generosity of God's people. Read the Bible. Look at history. God's work is always done through the generosity of God's people. God calls His people to rise up to the challenge of the opportunity in front of them to step out in faith, to take advantage of what He has placed there. He doesn't need us, but He is pleased to use us because in using us, He changes us, He blesses us, and He frees us. So we have um, tried to make a roadmap, and this also is in all of our literature that we've been publishing. And this is a very, um, this is not inspired, um, but it is a strategic plan in a sense, to get us from point A to point B. How do we, as a small two-and-a-half-year-old church, get to the place where we have raised uh, half a million dollars over the course of three years to be used for the advancement of the gospel in this community and beyond? Well, honestly, we have the opportunity right here. This is a very doable plan. Um, And and what I want you to see is that it actually takes advantage of, of or equips people at every giving level to play a significant part. Every gift counts because every person in the process 
counts, right? At the lowest level, we're talking about eight people who are willing to give $500 over, over three years. That's a sacrifice for some folks. I mean, like a significant sacrifice. I don't want to downplay that. That comes out to a little over $3 a week. And for some folks, that's a significant, they have to give up something that is, is going to hurt in order to give that amount. And I understand that. But the reality is that I think God is going to call us at, at multiple levels to step into the sacrifice joyfully, freely, sacrificially, to see Him use us for this end. Now, here's the thing. Last week, I got the privilege of, of um, announcing the leadership gift. I went to the leaders and, and basically asked them to give first. Why did I do that? Because leaders lead. That's what leaders do. And so I've asked the leaders to step out and lead. Let's start out with a lead gift and then ask others to follow. And, and I, I challenged them. I'm like, let's see how God's going to free us up to generosity, you guys. So I came to the leaders and said, let's do this, right? Last week, I announced that we had raised, as of last week, over $255,000 as a lead gift toward our goal. Are you excited about that, Steve? I am excited about that. Why don't you preach about it? I think I will. Um, yeah, I mean, that's incredibly cool. Here's the thing. As of this morning, as of this morning, um, the rest of our leaders reported, we've raised $316,860 just from our leaders. That is incredibly humbling to me and incredibly exciting because it shows a level of passion and buy-in and love for Christ and for this church that is just exciting to be part of. I love the fact that we're not just moving toward getting a building. We are moving toward becoming the right kind of people to inhabit that building. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not just the generosity. It's the way God is freeing up our hearts and generosity. And so I am asking you to pray and to ask God how much He would have you commit. If you call Trail at home, if you are a member, a regular attender, this is your place where you believe God has you for this season, then I am going to ask you to join us as we move forward on mission. I can't tell you how much to give, but I can tell you that God will tell you. Come to Him, be willing to step out in faith, be willing to sacrifice and joy, and He'll meet you in it. It is for your benefit, to quote Paul, and it will be good. So next week, I'm asking you to come with the pledge card. At the back of this book is a card where you can explain what your pledge is over the next three years. Next week, we're going to take our regular offering at the beginning of service, just like normal, but at the end of, uh, the, end of the service, we're going to take up another offering, not for money, but for the pledges. So I'm going to ask you to come prepared to pray about it, to ask God how much you should give and come prepared to, to let us know, um, knowing that, that every gift is significant. Um, we're also going to ask you to pray about how you can be involved in the first fruits offering on December 15th. We're going to ask you to pray about and see if God will free you up to give 10% of your three-year pledge on that day. Will God free you up and give you the resources to give 10% of your three-year pledge on December 15th? If not, how much does he free you up and, and empower you to give, right? Not legalism here. It's just a matter of let's ask. Let's find out because this is our way of, in a sense, priming the pump and, and getting that first push on the merry-go-round to, to build momentum. And so we're asking you to come prepared on December 15th um, with the first fruits offering. You guys, we are at a historic crossroads of challenge and opportunity as a church. We have an opportunity to do what, honestly, few churches have been able to do by the grace of God to invest in this community, to advance the kingdom of God, to see more lives transformed, more people freed, and to make much of Christ. It is time to get greedy. It is time to get greedy for grace. It is time to get greedy for the influence of the gospel. It is time to get greedy for joy and for freedom because the challenge in front of us is great and the opportunity that will come from it is even greater. So let's be faithful. Now, next week, we're going to talk about how God uses small acts of faithfulness and magnifies them for His glory and other people's good. We'll be talking about that legacy piece. But for now, let's focus on being faithful. So that's where I'm going to end it up today. I'm just going to ask you to pray and ask God how He would have you be involved. These booklets, by the way, if you don't have yours or if you never got one, they're going to be available at the door. You can pick them up um, on your way out today. It'll tell you more about the campaign and give you that form that I talked about. All right, let's pray. We'll go into our time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Father God, I thank you that... Um, I just thank you. <laughs> You're such a great God. I thank you, Lord, that you...
are determined to redeem our stories and to restore us to lives of hope and purpose and direction. Lord, I thank you that we know the end of the story, that that's not a mystery. The end of the story, you get your glory, and we get a joy that we don't deserve. Lord, free us to live in the light of the end of the story. Let us live with a purpose that actually drives our behavior and frees us to joy and to things that really matter. Lord, I pray that you'll go ahead of us, that you'll meet our need, that you will equip us financially for the challenges that are in front of us. And in so doing, Lord, I pray that you will change our hearts, that we will become the kind of people who are radically generous because you are a radically generous God, a people undone by grace. For your glory, for our joy.